So earlier this week, I was having a um, conversation, an Eastery conversation with a woman from our congregation, and she asked me what I thought was a pretty simple question, which was, uh, why, why was the stone rolled away from the tomb? Like, occasionally I have to field very difficult questions. It's like, well, like, resurrection, Jesus came out of the tomb. Then I realized, she asked the question again, she was like, did Jesus really need the stone rolled away, like, for his benefit? Then I was thinking, like, pretty much after the resurrection, Jesus could come and go, he could appear, didn't really use the front door like normal people after that. The laws of uh, time and space didn't seem to apply to the resurrected body in quite the same way. And I was like, this is a interesting question. It was not for Jesus' benefit that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. It was for the disciples' benefit, right? So folks could run to that empty tomb, look inside the bravest among them, Peter, to actually go in and see the linens that had wrapped his dead body and the headcloth folded up in the corner and think, what does this mean? What is going on? And all these years later, the reason that stone was rolled away is for disciples like us, for our benefit too, for us to wonder, what does it mean that Jesus is living? To put it another way, the cross was not a defeat. Jesus did not lose at the cross. God's plans did not fail at the cross, and Easter was not the reversal of that defeat, right? The cross was part of the great victory plan of God that started the second that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, right? God's plan was, I'm coming to earth, and I'm going to start a good infection across this whole planet that is eventually going to spread to every atom and inch of the whole place, Like, it started when Jesus became an unborn baby. The great moment of victory, not defeat, was when sacrificial love gave itself fully on the cross. And Easter, then, is the first manifestation or sign of victory. It's not the only sign, Lord willing. The signs, the echoes, the results of the resurrection, the reverberations, they are still going on and on and on. And as time and history move forward, like, Lord willing, the church grows and the reverberations just get louder. Now, last week uh, during the Easter message, I put up a drawing that looked kind of like this. It has four circles, and starting in the upper left is kind of the ideal world as we imagine it, and then we recognize, man, this world that we live in is broken and riddled with all kinds of problems. The circle in the lower right is this rebellion that God started by, again, Jesus coming to earth, and the truth that when Jesus died and went into the grave, if you are united with Christ, everything goes down into the grave with him, and from then on, everything that is still with him comes back to life, and the fourth circle on the bottom left is a description of what the plan is from Easter Sunday out. That the mission of God, that the kingdom of God is here and that we're sent together to heal the world from here on out. That's the big idea. So for the next couple months, we're going to hang out in this fourth circle and kind of hone in on a thing or two each week that is a sign that God is in fact accomplishing this and that we have the humble privilege of being... uh, on board with the mission of God and being a small part of his plan to heal. Um, 
Lord willing, what we've witnessed here with 21 people joining our congregation on a single day, uh, like, that's part of the plan. That's part of the spiritual plan. Uh, we are going to read from Luke chapter 8 today, just eight verses, kind of falls in two parts, and there are some outstanding signs of the echoes of the resurrection, uh, even though this particular passage came probably a year or two before Jesus' passion. Jesus was living the kingdom life, the mission life, every breath he took, every step he took. Here's what the gospel says. Jesus traveled about from town and vi- from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, 12 guide disciples. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. One was Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who was the manager of Herod's household. A woman named Susanna. We know nothing else about her. And many other women. These women were helping to support them, Jesus and the Twelve, out of their own means. Now, this is one of the few glimpses in the Gospels, friends, of the way that Jesus' physical and material needs were met during his ministry. I confess the Sunday school part of the back of my brain just thinks that anytime Jesus was hungry, he just like multiplied bread and fish, and boom, it happened. Like, that happened, but probably not three times a day. There are examples in the Gospels of the disciples buying food, renting a room, giving gifts to the poor, but this is the only place it actually talks about how the needs were supplied. It was the love and gratitude of these devoted women. Jesus not only talked to women, famously, even when other guys would not, Jesus not only talked to women, he invited women into his band of disciples, was financed by them, and some of them, as in this story, even traveled from town to town and village to village with the Lord. This would be unusual in the Middle East today. It was crazy unusual 2,000 years ago. Let me offer a few historical quotes. One uh, Bible commentary says this, other rabbis at the time of Jesus, quote, refused to even teach a woman and generally assigned them an inferior place. Jesus allowed these women a very close and influential and prominent place. Like, that's different. Historian Ken Bailey, who lived uh, three quarters of his life, he recently passed away in the Middle East, says this, uh, today social customs are much more relaxed uh, than they were in the first century. Yet in the contemporary Middle East, I know of no place in society where the situation presented in Luke 8 is possible. Women can travel with a group of men during daytime hours, but they must spend their nights at home with relatives. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was going town to town, village to village, with men disciples, the closest 12, and women disciples. What is going on here? This is one of the girls rock moments in the Gospels. Okay? Like, guys rock, girls rock. Like, in Jesus' opinion. Like, everybody's in. It is surprising that Luke, as a 2,000-year-old now, like, doctor and writer, would mention this detail. Because in the eyes of everybody else, this would cast uh, kind of a sideways glance and a stink eye on the Jesus movement. And Luke wants everybody to know that it was women who were paying for and funding the Jesus movement. 
Jesus' team, if I can put it that way. His support, his partnership, it's the 12, and also these women. In my humble opinion, this is an amazing sign of life for us. It is as if God is telling his church, people, in my eyes, you are better together. I'm trying to create a new thing, a bigger thing, a more diverse thing, a deeper thing on a heart and soul level. What united Jesus' original team 2,000 years ago? What unites the church still today? Here's what is off the table. Race, race and ethnicity does not unite the Jesus team. Even though there are a lot of Jewish folks, there are also Greeks and Gentiles who are early adopters. Right? Jesus could have kept it all in-house with Jewish folks. The plan is for a bigger and more diverse team. Is it economic or social status that unites the church or Jesus' band of disciples? Mercy. No. There were some rich ladies in this mix. There were also some zealots who were like political rebels who had nothing. There were fishermen who were struggling to make ends meet. There were rich and poor, slave and free, as the passage from Galatians 3 that Klein read earlier. Is it gender or sex that binds Jesus' disciples or the church together? Mercy, no. There's men and women, and we're all ages in this place. I mean, there's four-year-olds, and there's octogenarians, and this is God's idea of a dream team. It is not a homogenous group of people, but it is diverse in terms of age, gender, economic status, social standing, the whole lot. We are better together. By the way, there is nowhere else that I know of in the world, just in the front of my mind, that this works. I mean, if you follow politics at all, the, the political news is always like middle-aged Latin women in Texas are voting this way. You know what I'm saying? Like, our minds always divide things up and say, how does everyone in this box of people think about politics? In the church, you can leave that all behind. Because here's the deal. There's little kids downstairs. I'm a middle-aged guy. There's old people here. We're men and women in here. Some of us were born in the United States. Some of us in the room were born in Guatemala or Eastern Europe, or we have Puerto Rican or Mexican blood. There's a few Dutch people left around here. There's a few crazy... Irish folks, like, it doesn't matter. Like, if you want to be on Jesus' team, none of this matters. There is something much higher and deeper and more significant going on. What binds Jesus' team together is this, a shared experience first and foremost, that we have all been rescued and saved that we have gone to the cross and the grave with Christ and we have risen up and we're walking with him. Right on. Like, if you have that in common with people, like, who cares if you're both middle-aged women? Like, you have something eternally significant in common, even if you don't speak the same language. We share the same experience, and we share the same values, that we love God and we're committed to walking the pathway of Christ. So this passage, this sign of life, I think implies one action for all of us in the room today. And uh, if I can put it colloquially, it is this. Like, Get on Jesus' team, or even more colloquially, like, get in the hopper with God. You know what a hopper is? It's like, uh, it's like the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. 
minus the germs and the infections. <laughs> like, like there's all this diverse thing of balls and they're just like mixed up all together. Another hopper is like, if you've ever seen somebody pushing one of those uh, like fertilizer spreaders or seed spreaders, right? It has this big like bucket on the front. You pour all the seed in the front, like that thing is the hopper. Like the important thing is to be in God's hopper, like in Jesus' hopper. So we welcomed all these new members today. As God is my witness, I could care less how many members we have in this church, like on paper. We could have, there's like 1,500, right? We could have 4,000 or 5,000. If folks are just members in paper and not in the hopper, it does no good. Zero good. Zero spiritual energy from names on a page. The actual number, and I don't have this number, that I would care about is how many of us in the room are like all in, like who are saying to God and Lord willing, this is what the group that was standing in front of us today is saying, like, God, for whatever reason, you've put me in this church. It's not a perfect church, but I'm following you who is a perfect God. So because you've put me here, I'll bleed here. I'll sweat here. When you give us marching orders, I'm all in. I'm sacrificing because I love you first and foremost. Like, if we have more people who are in the hopper and that's what it means to belong, like, dude, the world is going to change a little bit. (sighs) All right. Summer is coming, despite the signs outdoors. Summer is coming. Uh, Part of my experience a couple months from now will be to gather around a series of campfires uh, during a family reunion that I have with my siblings and nieces and nephews. Um... It will go down something like this because I love to burn things. I will start things on fire just like a half hour before uh, sunset. And then after the sun goes down, everybody will pull in their uh, camp chairs, a couple picnic tables. And as a clan, we will be hanging out at the literal and proverbial campfire. Here's what I guarantee will happen. Uh, because I don't see my siblings all that often. We'll kind of like catch each other up on the news. We'll learn some of the things that have happened over the course of the last year. And then some of the family stories will start uh, getting broken out and retold. Right? There are certain stories that at every single family reunion, like I can tell you, this story is going to be told. That story is going to be told. When I was a little younger, uh, I used to like roll my eyeballs a little bit. I'm like, seriously, you're going to tell that story again? The one that makes you look really good and makes me look really stupid? Okay. Like, you can tell that story again. Uh, as I become a middle-aged person, here's the reality that has dawned on me. What we are repeating as a family and as siblings together is not just stories. We are reminding each other who we are, what we have in common, and what matters the most to us. That is what the family stories are all about. So now that I know that, I can sit through however many stories my idiot brother wants to tell about, no. Like, that's that's what's going to happen, and, like, it will bless me. And because our parents are gone, it's not just, you know, stories about that my dad was a good baseball player. It's about the kind of man he was and the values that he wanted to pass on to us as kids. That's what the stories are actually about. Now, in Jesus' family, if you are in the hopper with Jesus, as it were, uh, my suggestion is that when Jesus tells stories, when Jesus tells parables, that is the dynamic of what is going on. If you read one of Jesus' parables and think, like, what's the moral of the story? 
Or what was the point of that story? Uh, That's not a bad thought, but it's not the most mature thought. The real spiritual power of Jesus' parables are simply listening to them over and over again and letting it like marinate in your spirit what actually matters in the kingdom of God and what actually matters to the heart of God. That's what the parables are all about. So in Luke 8, first four verses are about kind of this diverse group of people in the hopper. Second four verses are a story. So while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, Jesus told them this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Now again, when I think about sowing seeds, I think about those like fertilizer broadcaster things. I was going to bring one in, and then I realized that poisoning the front rows with fertilizer would be bad. Yes. Okay. So these things, you know, you might overseed your lawn. You can grow some new grass this way. It produces lush, green, rich, west suburban lawns. This is not the kind of seed throwing that Jesus is talking about. Okay? Here's a scene from a modern-day Israeli garden or little farm. It's, like, really dry. It's circled by a stone wall. There's some pathways that divide it up into some quadrants. You can see at the top of the screen, the soil is just like rocky and not even tilled and usable for growth yet. And this guy in the picture is actually, he's planting some eggplant seeds. Wouldn't you love to have a harvest of eggplants? All right, so if you can keep this picture in your head as Jesus tells his story, because this is the kind of scene that his original audience would have heard. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along one of those little paths. It was trampled on, birds ate it up. Some fell, maybe toward the top of that screen, on the rocky ground. When it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seeds fell off the edge among the thorns, which, when it grew up, was choked. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop. A hundred times more than was sown. And when Jesus had said this, he called out, if you would, in a loud voice, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now again, if you are looking for the moral of the story, you can ask a number of questions. What is the story about? Do I find myself in the story? Am I like the sower? Is Jesus the sower? Maybe I'm the, the seed. That would make sense because if I'm the seed, I get walked and trampled on all the time. But maybe the gospel is the seed. Am I supposed to be one of the types of soil? What would it take to be good soil? Right? You could preach 20 sermons just on any of those questions. I'm not going to preach you 20 sermons. God bless us all. The one thing I have for you today is Jesus' final line that we read all together. Jesus tells this family story and then says to people town after town, village after village who heard this story, listen, if you have ears to hear, listen. Let it sink in. Receive this story. This is much harder than it would first appear. Personally, I would rather that there was a moral to the story. Like, personally, I would rather that Jesus just gave me some simple black and white marching orders every day of my life. Hey, Greg, here's what we're going to do this week. You're going to write a relatively nice speech for a group of people at Elmhurst Christopher Brown Church. Like, maybe work on your blog a little bit, have a couple meetings with the people who report to you, call it good. All right, Lord, I got it. That's simple and clear, right? That That is not life in the kingdom of God. 
the point of the story is not just to kind of be a good Christian boy and coast your way through life. It's to absorb in this story what really matters to the heart of God, to listen and take it in. Now, here's a few things that, that I notice about this story when I sit here and take it in. First thing I notice is that whoever this farmer was when he was throwing seed all over the place was not particularly careful with his seed. I mean, broadcast is the word for what we do with seed, right? Not narrowcast. Like, it goes everywhere. And then the farmer, after he throws this all over the place, kind of waits and sees what happens. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. The seed goes all over the place, and then we're supposed to wait and see what happens. Now, again, being a responsible person, and it being spring here in Chicago, like, here's what I would like to do. I would like to make that seed grow, like, by watering it. But I can't make seeds grow. I mean, I planted some bulbs this year. It's a miracle. They keep coming out of the ground. I think these thoughts, like, grow, 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 but that does no good right? Willpower, mental power has no effect on seeds. I cannot ensure what type of seed or what type of soil all the seed goes on, right? Out of my control. The farmer's throwing it. I'm a witness. There it goes. I don't control the temperature. I don't control the amount of sun. I don't control the amount of rain. I don't control when it gets cold. I don't control when it gets crazy hot. All of the necessary jobs for planting the seed all of the necessary job for planting the gospel are taken by, well, three people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, we're supposed to listen to this story? Like, God has all the work here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing this. So what's left for us? We're supposed to listen to the story and be a witness. Now, witnesses are really not all that necessary. I mean, it might sound noble and dramatic. I'm a witness. Got to be a witness. But, you know, the proverbial question, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, like, did it make a sound? This is a dumb question, in my opinion. (laughs) Like, of course it made a sound. (laughs) Like, if seed is planted on good soil and then it grows up and there's a harvest, is there still a harvest? Yes. Whether I witnessed it or not, there was still a harvest. Witnesses simply watch and then talk about what they see. I saw some seed hit the ground, and then it started to grow. And then this giant weed whomped it, and it died. That's a witness. Now, if you ask any courtroom judge, the last thing they want is a creative witness. You hear what I'm saying? A creative witness is dangerous Because when we start getting creative, we start spreading it into our own story. Well, I saw the seed hit the ground, and I was listening to this awesome song on my phone. And then I saw this migrating flood. Like, none of it matters. Like, that is not the story. The seed hit the ground. God is not after creative witnesses. He just wants witnesses. Do you have ears to hear this very open-ended story? One of the deep values of the story is that God is in the broadcasting business. And for everybody else, if we're in the hopper, we get to wait and see what happens next. God is throwing seed everywhere. God is doing this. 
and we get to wait and see what happens next. This wait and see rhythm, man, again, it's hard because I want to do things as a responsible adult. I always want to do stuff, and there is stuff to do. But in the most important things, it's wait and see. If you are a grown-up, you know this rhythm. Say there's a college student here, and you've had a sports injury, college student. You love to play whatever sport it is. You're a soccer player, and you blew out your knee. What do you do? You get surgery if you need it. You put on the brace. You do your rehab. You go to physical therapy. Are you going to play again? Are you going to be as good as you were before the injury? Wait and see. Right? The most important part, wait and see. There's a person here who has lost a job. I mean, you go, you start tapping into your savings, Lord willing, you have a little. I mean, maybe you retool and you retrain a little bit. Uh, You focus yourself. You finally go in for an interview for what seems to be the right job. You go home and one of your kids asks you, are you going to get the job? How did it go? Wait and see. You're a high school student and you have one of those horrible classes that you go to for an entire semester and the only way, the only things that go into your grade are your final paper that's due like the last week of school and then your final exam. And you really need a good grade in this class. So like, how does this feel? You do all your assignments all semester. You like, you take your notes, you hand your paper in, you take your exam. What grade are you going to get in this class? Wait and see. Isn't this horrible? You're the president of a company and your main customer goes bankrupt out of the blue, surprises you and shocks you. You have a year to replace all of their business or you're going to be following their example into bankruptcy. So what do you do? Well, you better get to work, right? You better start pitching and recruiting and making phone calls. But are you going to make it? If that happened today, a year from now, are you going to make it? Wait and see. Man, your marriage is blowing up or your friendship is blowing up and you have oh, all this reckon. Is your relationship going to survive? Wait and see. Friends, our salvation is like this. This is why I'm giving you so many examples. Our salvation is like this. Wait and see what God is going to do. Everything is like this. I mean, if you're a parent of young kids, how are they going to turn out? Oh boy, wait and see. You're a kid with aging parents. What's going to happen to them? Wait and see. Everything of substance and our salvation is wait and see. This is a rhythm we know by heart. Here's what I know. The harvest belongs to God. The broadcasting belongs to God. The future belongs to God. Your destiny belongs to God. Everybody you care about, their destiny belongs to God. And hopefully, after this Jesus story, this actually sounds like good news, that all of this is out of your hands. Have you read any history? Do you want the future to be in, like, my hands or the president's hands or a congress's hands, or some other leader's hands? Heaven help us. 
I mean, I don't even want the present to be in the care of these two wobbly hands. Our only hope, our only hope is in a Savior who spreads the good seed of the gospel so lavishly, everywhere, indiscriminately. He's throwing it at you. He's throwing it at your house. He's throwing it in your neighborhood. Here's what I promise. That seed is going to hit you. Especially if you're nearby. A ton of it is going to hit you. And if you just wait, you will see. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you have gathered a diverse team of disciples into your family, into this very church, and we thank you that you've included the likes of us. Thank you, too, that you have handled all the important work for us and for our salvation. We want to cooperate. We want to be your witnesses. We want to grow, and we can't wait to see what you will do next. So, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done here on planet Earth as it is in heaven. Amen.